Please be seated. Good evening. <clears throat> this is a very special evening. Tonight we celebrate Jesus' institution of what we call the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, the Eucharist, or the Great Thanksgiving, or the Mass. Maundy Thursday is also the night Jesus commanded, he mandated, his disciples to obey, to obey a new commandment, which is this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Tonight, I would like to share with you some thoughts on our worship and the celebration of the Lord's Supper and on following Jesus, a new commandment. One of the things that attracted me to the Anglican way of worship, it's been almost 25 years now already, um, was this practice of keeping the church year, the liturgical calendar, this yearly round of festival, fast, special days. Because by doing this, we not only remember and retell the story of our redemption annually, we relive it and we celebrate as we celebrate the great events of our salvation and worship the Lord. We begin with Advent, <clears throat> the vigil of preparation for the Lord's descent to earth for us and for our salvation. Curiously, Advent celebrates both the first coming of the Lord and looks forward to his future return in glory. It is a great season of anticipation. Then we enjoy the beauty, innocence, and sweetness of Christmastide as we celebrate God with us, Emmanuel. I've always thought our church had a great name. <clears throat> the Epiphany season, in my experience, allows us to tarry a little longer in the fragrance of Christmas as we remember Jesus' progressive revelation to the world, first to the Gentiles, the Magi, then through the ministry of John, and miracles to the Jews, such as turning water into wine. Lent recalls us to the disciplines of self-examination, repentance, and giving. We are invited to participate in 40 days of self-denial and preparation as we contemplate Jesus' suffering and death. At the end of Lent, we have this wonderful but exhausting time of Holy Week. And here at Emmanuel, we have our prayer vigil in which we are invited to watch and pray, responding to Jesus' question to his sleepy disciples on the night of his arrest, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then Easter, the Feast of the Resurrection. We bask in the glory of Easter for many weeks, then celebrate Ascension Day, and 10 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, and the descent of the Holy Spirit. Then the long season of ordinary time in which we live in the continual presence and comfort of God's Spirit and begin to serve Him in His glorious kingdom right now. Some Christians do not celebrate these days or keep only a few of them. It's not required. Romans 14 says one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. I respect churches that do not observe one day above another. But for me, this would be like not celebrating a birthday or an anniversary <clears throat> or some other special event. So I prefer to keep them. <clears throat> I remember reading several years ago the Exodus 12 passage that we just heard about the institution of the Passover. And this was years ago. And for some reason, I don't know why, but the whole Exodus story and the Passover feast seemed to me to be such an ancient story and so far removed from us. And in a sense, it is. 
the institution of the Passover may have occurred as early as 1446 B.C., depending on the dates, almost 3,500 years ago, certainly more than 3,000 years ago. But then it occurred to me, somehow struck me, that the Passover, this archetypical event in salvation history that occurred so long ago, is really not far removed from us at all. In fact, it is very close to us. Do we not commemorate the Passover feast, the fulfillment of the Passover every Sunday? Every Sunday we say, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover, and it is ongoing. So when we observe special days like these in Holy Week, we are not merely remembering passively some past event. Uh, we're not pretending as children playing a game. We're not acting as in a dramatic production. Instead, we are in the present engaging in live worship with our mind, our senses, and even our bodies as we kneel, stand, raise our hands, eat, drink. Our worship involves our entire being. And we do not merely commemorate the great redemptive acts of God, we participate in them, just as if we were there when it happened. Uh, we adore the Christ child at Christmas. We worship him with the Magi. We keep the Lord's Supper. We keep our prayer vigil before his arrest. We are there at his crucifixion on Good Friday. We rise with him on Easter Sunday, just as did the disciples. Then we live and serve him in the post-resurrection days of the church and his kingdom. And after that, we'll do it all over again next year. This cycle of worship has been called by some scholars the eternal return. It always appealed to me. The sense of the timelessness of worship. Nothing is really in the past tense. We enter into the events as we celebrate. We enter into them. They are now in the present, ever present. Not that the events are repeated. They're not repeated. But it is as if we were there when they did happen. This sense of timelessness is echoed in the offices of morning and evening prayer, uh, where repeatedly it is said, as it was in the beginning, is now, ever shall be, world without end. That's why eternity is, eternity is supposed to be like that, they say, in never-ending present. And we want things to last. We're like children wanting to play a game over and over again. King Solomon wrote that he, in Ecclesiastes, he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart. Fortunately for us, eternity is part of the deal. Pop quiz. Do you remember the last verse of Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've been when we first begun. <laughs> I've always liked that one. In a few moments, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. And this is worship we love to do over and over again, isn't it? Paul says... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We do it every week, sometimes more. There is no end to contemplating the depth of meaning of this meal. The Lord's Supper is not a magical thing. Uh, the bread is not a superfood. The wine is not some secret elixir. Holy communion is a spiritual transaction. The bread and the wine are not magical, but neither are they merely bread and wine. The consecrated bread that we eat is far more than just bread. It will be for us the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. That means that we are the body of Christ. The wine we drink is far more than only wine. It will be for us the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant, the cup of salvation. That means his life is in us. But mysteriously, this spiritual transaction requires us to take and eat and to drink this, all of you. 
our worship in spirit and truth is carried out in bodies. Again, we worship, our worship involves our whole being. And I've got a footnote here I wanted to add. I thought I might leave it out if I needed to, but uh, I want to say this. Sandy Green, when he was here recently, we had lunch um, before the ordination service, and we talked about many things, and including the nature of bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. And he commented on how it is God's way to transform things, to make all things new. <clears throat> Consider the bread. It begins as a seed, then a shoot, a stalk, a grain. The grain is harvested, mixed with other ingredients, baked into bread. Very different from the original seed, but inseparable from it. Likewise, the wine. Seed, vine, grape, processing and fermentation, then wine. And when we take the bread and wine in our bodies, it will be assimilated and used by our bodies and our spirits. So our worship involves body, soul, and spirit. And if worship is in some sense timeless, and we have some idea of what past and present coming together in worship looks like, what will the future part of our worship look like? What will we do? How will we respond to God's sacrificial love for us? <clears throat> Both Matthew and Mark say after, that after the supper, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's one non-biblical source that claims the disciples danced in a circle around Jesus and sang a song of praise before they went out. They may have. After that, however, things started to get very ugly. Jesus warned what would happen. Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In Matthew, Jesus quoting Zechariah. And after the Lord's Supper, Jesus went out, was abandoned by his closest friends, and gave his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out for the life of the world. <clears throat> Jesus has also told us that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. It is our job, our calling, our vocation to be like our teacher, to imitate our master. If Jesus gave himself for the life of the world, we are to do the same not to secure our salvation, but to demonstrate, confirm, and live out our salvation, to be more Christ-like. Paul tells us in Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What a curious calling we have to be living sacrifices. What might it look like for us today to pour out our lives for the life of the world? It could take many forms, of course, depending on the circumstances in which the Lord has placed us and the ministries in which we are individually called. But our model, of course, is always the master himself. Jesus' commandment <clears throat> was for us to love one another. To do this, he gave us a peculiar example to follow. When supper had ended, Jesus rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded, as we just read. <clears throat> now, I know that foot washing has little meaning in our present culture, really. But we have a good idea of what it meant in Jesus' day, and we understand the lesson in humility. Do you think we should take this foot washing literally, or we should take it in a spiritual, allegorical sense? I say yes. <laughs> um, we will wash each other's feet. I invite you to participate. Um, please do not feel awkward or embarrassed. The mechanics are easy. You pour water over your brother or sister's feet one at a time and you dry them with a towel. But I have another suggestion for us to think about this evening. 
Remember who it was who was doing the foot washing at the Last Supper. It was not the disciples. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So imagine, if possible, that Jesus were washing your feet. That might be hard to do, but that's what happened back then, and in a very real sense, it is what will happen tonight. <clears throat> Jesus was very clear in explaining the foot washing. He says in uh, John 13, where we just were, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do, you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. <clears throat> In conclusion, um, C.S. Lewis once remarked that God has paid us an almost unbearable compliment. He has loved us. So what will be our response to his sacrificial love for us? John tells us we love him because he first loved us. And Paul says the love of Christ constrains us. So in imitation of the Savior, we must sacrificially love one another, our neighbor, and even the whole world. Let us pray. God, our Father, whose Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in a wonderful sacrament, has left us a memorial of his passion. Grant us so to venerate the sacred mysteries of his body and blood that we may ever perceive in ourselves the fruit of his redemption, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.